Hey everyone, it's good to be with you this morning. My name's Tony. If we haven't had the, the pleasure of meeting, it is good to be with you. Now, this morning will be our last Sunday uh, in the life of Abraham, right? We've been spending the last, since 2021, we've been in the Old Testament, slowly working our way through. We're in the life of Abraham. Now, I have a little bit of a confession to make. When I first read about the life of Abraham, I was actually in college. And I didn't read about him in the Torah, in Genesis, but rather in the New, New Testament. And when I read about him, I had this impression that Abraham was this, like, perfect person of faith. Like, holy, amazing, never a moment's doubt or misstep. In the book of James, James writes, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I wanted to be righteous too. So I thought, man, if I am going to be like anyone, I'm going to be like Abraham. Because I just assumed, man, that dude is perfect. It wasn't until later when I actually read the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis that I actually learned what Abraham was really like. He has these few moments of incredible faith, like jaw-dropping, amazing faith. And he has a few moments of incredible fear and faithlessness. And they're all, his whole life was in the, is in the story, the arc of the faithfulness of God. Tim Mackey, who's a Bible scholar with the Bible Project, says that characters like Abraham in the Old Testament are meant to be mirrors, not models, right? Like they're not exactly how we're supposed to live, but they're mirrors of what our life is like. And then when we read the life of Abraham, what we realize is that both Abraham and us were kind of like a mixed bag of good, bad choices, faith, and fear. It's my hope this morning that we can use Abraham's life kind of like a mirror, giving us a picture of real life. And hopefully, what we'll do by the end is realize that we are not actually the hero of our own spiritual journey, but God is. I want to start, though, with these moments of faith in Abraham's life. Because it's true, he does have these incredible moments of faith. And they kind of bookend his life, right? Very early at the beginning in chapter 12, and then also in chapter 22. Chapter 12, right? God says this to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to land I will show you. Right? God says, go, and Abraham does. He leaves everything that is safe and known and comfortable to follow God's invitation. It's inspiring. It's amazing. So much so that the author of Hebrew highlights in Hebrews 11:8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham let go of control. He responded. And we look back at that moment and we say, wow, that's amazing. And then the other bookend is in Genesis 22, right? Isaac, the long-awaited son promised by God has just been born. Abraham and Sarah, right? They've been unable to have kids. Now Isaac is with them. And then God asks Abraham the unthinkable. Genesis 22, 1 and 2. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains 
of which I shall tell you. Now we know from the text that God is testing Abraham, but Abraham doesn't know that. And Moriah means God will provide. So maybe Abraham assumes, right, that God is going to provide, but still, seriously? Right, even here, Abraham trusts God. I mean, this is that like crazy, unbelievable type of faith. Now, there's a lot of really uncomfortable aspects to the story, and Aaron and I will cover it in cutting room floor. For right now, I just want to highlight that when we look back on Abraham's life, you see these two bookends of faithfulness. His willingness to go both from the land that is familiar and to the mountain called Moriah, both in response to God. And my guess is, if you looked at your own life, you could probably see, both in the present and the past, a few examples when you took risks, when you were faithful. I think most of us can relate to that. Some moments, you know, maybe not as big and spectacular, but these moments when we, we really trusted. But these moments within Abraham's life are also set within a larger story that showcases some really painfully faithless moments as well. Right, Genesis 12, right? God blesses Abraham. He calls him out of Ur and then he blesses him, right? Go be a blessing to the nations, Abraham. He promises him land. He promises him family. Genesis 12. Then immediately after, within that same chapter, the author tells us there's a severe famine. And where does Abraham go, right? After he's been promised this land, immediately after he goes to Egypt. He deserts the land of promise to go to the Nile Delta, which has more dependable rainfall. And when he gets there, right, he's afraid that Sarah's looks are so irresistibly attractive that he asks her to tell people that she is his sister. See, Abraham feared that Sarah's good looks would be so irresistible to the Egyptians that they would kill him in order to take her as a wife. But in so doing, he jeopardizes another element of God's promise that he would bring a family to Abraham and Sarah. And he sort of allows her to be taken, as we'll see, by Pharaoh. But I just want to say a quick aside here, because I think this is a really important just cultural note. It doesn't really have, it's not central to my sermon, but I think it's really worth saying. There's really a fascinating cultural study about beauty here. Sarah is about 65 years old, right? And in her culture, she is seen as astoundingly attractive. Now, for us, we live in a cultural context that worships both youth and thinness. And I think it might be helpful for us to realize that not everyone thinks this way. Ideas of feminine beauty actually in traditional societies differ radically from ours. Here, right, or in the ancient Egypt, right, in the ancient world, well-endowed matronly figures, not slim youthful ones, tend to represent the ideal of womanhood and tend to be seen as the most attractive. So 65-year-old Sarah going into Egypt, every man is like swooning over her. Just a little cultural commentary, back to the story. All right, so they go to Egypt. Sarah is so overwhelmingly beautiful 
that the pharaoh, the king, invites her right into his palace. Now, we don't exactly know what happens in the palace. We do know that Abraham, though, who is, quote-unquote, the brother, is given the bride price, which is essentially what uh, the family of the bride is paid at betrothal. But I want us to notice this. In this scene, there are parallels to Genesis 2 and 3, which is the story of the fall. Both Sarah and the trees in the garden are described as beautiful and pleasant in appearance. And there is also a seeing and a taking of that which is desirable. And this is the author's way of signaling to us that just here in Genesis 12, just after God has called Abraham and offers and wants to make him a blessing to the nations, there is another fall narrative. And when Pharaoh learns the truth, he says to Abraham, what is this you have done to me? Right? He's utterly shocked by Abraham's deception, which is important because this is not some sort of like cross-cultural communication thing. Like, they think the same about what Abraham did as we do. Like, that's despicable. And the only reason that Pharaoh seems to be so lenient on Abraham, just deporting him, is because God sends a plague on Abraham's or Pharaoh's house so that Pharaoh assumes, rightly, that God is actually protecting Abraham and therefore is lenient. God is faithful in the midst of Abraham's fear and failure. Even though Abraham is sent to be a blessing to the nations, and the first thing that Abraham does is go to another nation, lie to the monarch, and get deported. God remains faithful. Um, over the last few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, I had this uh, relational experience where I was in a conversation with someone and I ended up being more reactive, more kind of defensive and argumentative than I would like to be. And after the conversation, I, I felt this like actual overwhelming sense of shame. Now, shame as an emotion often reveals like we have an ideal of who we think we are should be. And when our lived experience does not match that ideal, right, shame is the emotion that recognizes that there's a gap between who we think we are and who, or who we think we should be and who we actually are, right? And over the last 20 years, I have been working on not being defensive and reactive in conversations, right? So I can be the kind of person in the midst of a conflict that I can listen and hear and be empathetic. But in this conversation a few weeks ago, I wasn't. I got kind of defensive and reactive, and I felt shame after. And I had this thought in my head of like, man, I've been working on this for 20 years. Like, I should be over this by now. Has anyone ever felt that? Like, I feel like I have outgrown this pattern. If you've lived long enough, you're bound to have felt this, I think, at some point. And what we actually see in the life of Abraham is a similar pattern. Years later, him, years later, Abraham receives a promise from God. Genesis 15:1. He specifically tells Abraham, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. I'm gonna protect you, Abraham. And yet, in chapter 20, right? Chapter 12 is when he goes to Egypt. Chapter 20, he makes another trip to a foreign country and again attempts to pass his wife off as his sister. About 20 years have passed and Abram gives in to fear in almost the exact same way again. 
despite God's words not to fear, despite God's repeated promises, despite God's obvious faithfulness, Abraham gives into fear again and allows it to inform his choices. Right? He's sent to be a blessing to the nations, and he ends up both utterly failing at blessing them, and we discover that the rulers, both in chapter 20 and chapter 12, are actually more moral than Abraham himself. Those are two obvious examples in Abraham's life of just, man, he just totally misses it. There's one other I want to highlight. This is in chapter 16. God has promised Abraham and Sarah a child, but it's been nearly a decade, right? And this child has not arrived. Abraham's worried. So he actually goes to God and he says, God, I'm worried my heir right now is going to be a servant in my house. God, you promised me this. Chapter 15, God actually takes him outside. It's this beautiful moment. God takes him outside, tells him to look at the sky. Abraham, look at the sky. See all those stars? Your descendants are going to be like those stars, Abraham. The text says in verse 6, right? Genesis 15, 6, and the and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, right? He had these worries. He comes to God, and he believes. And then in chapter 16, with this promise still in our ears, Sarah hatches a plan. Who here has had the experience of, like, going on a retreat, or maybe just a robust prayer time, and God says something to you, and you're like, yes, Oh, game changer. Thank you, Jesus. You come back from this mountaintop experience. You come back into your everyday life, and you are sucked right back into that same pattern, that same trench, that same sort of pattern of brokenness that you thought on the mountaintop, man, that is cured. Anyone ever had that experience? Sarah has an Egyptian maid named Hagar, and she tells Abraham, right, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. This is Genesis 16, 2, right? Even though God has promised that they'll have a child, right, Sarah doubts. And like many wealthier wives in the ancient Near East, she decides she's going to use Hagar as her surrogate. Now, while this is actually a pretty common practice in their time, the author clearly thinks this is a mistake, right? Sarah takes Hagar and gives her to Abraham, right? Which intentionally, again, is going back to Genesis 3, mirroring a fall narrative. The wife, Eve, took the fruit and gave it to her husband. The author's trying to signal to us, okay, this is another fall narrative. But they do. They do have a child. His name is Ishmael. And even though this is Sarah's plan, she gets incredibly jealous of Hagar. She gets so jealous, in fact, that she starts treating her so harshly that Hagar runs away. And it's at this point, just like in Genesis 12 and 20, God intervenes. He actually saves Hagar in the wilderness, limiting 
the destructive consequences of Sarah and Abraham's sin, their doubt and their fear. When I assumed, right, reading the New Testament, that Abraham and Sarah was this, were these perfect models of faith, right? clearly, I was wrong. Right? You go back into these stories and you realize they're not meant to be models, they're meant to be mirrors. They reveal what is true of us too. Right? I bet if we took a moment right now and just looked back on our stories, we could see a couple moments of faith, times when we took risks, when we trusted And we'd probably look back and see a few moments when we really missed the mark. A few moments we're not particularly proud of. One of the things I was struck by this week is sometimes I have this actual pattern, and maybe you relate to it, of this kind of like self-referential spirituality. And what I mean by that is this. When I'm like doing good behaviors... When I, the behaviors that I think are good, quote-unquote, whatever, I feel like God is close. And then when I'm doing the behaviors, I feel like I shouldn't be doing these, I feel like God is distant. But ultimately, I'm just putting myself at the center. You notice that? Right? God's closeness is simply based on my perception of whether I am doing the right behavior or not. And even deeper, I feel like sometimes I think that based on my behaviors, God's affection, God, whether God likes me or not, increases or decreases. As if my behaviors can sort of affect the emotional control of God in heaven. And sometimes I wonder if there's an invitation in Genesis and the life of Abraham actually to shift our gaze from Abraham's moments of faith and failure to actually God's enduring love throughout Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, yes, and Abraham is faithful. He also promises to him, he says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Right? And God actually honors this promise, even though Abraham immediately lies to Pharaoh. God continues to be there with him. God doesn't abandon Abraham just because he fails to live up to his calling. And we see this actually too reinforced in Genesis 15 and 17. In Genesis 17, 1 and 2, he says to Abraham, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. But what's interesting here is that while God calls Abraham to this high calling, be blameless, he has already, God already knows, he has already run to Egypt, he has already lied to Pharaoh, he has already chosen to have a child with Hagar rather than trust in him. Right? God knows that Abraham isn't and won't be blameless. So what's going on here? I think the clue is actually in Genesis 15 where God makes this interesting promise and has Abraham do this sort of cross-cultural ritual, I think, to us. God asks Abraham to bring a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he tells them to cut them in half, right? What happens when you cut them in half? Right, the blood spills out. And then the text says that as the sun is setting, 
that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Then in verse 18, it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now, at least for me, the first time I read this, I was like, what is going on here? And then a number of years later, I went to Israel. And for part of my time there, I, hung, I, got this, I had this awesome privilege of hanging out with this Bedouin tribe. And while I was hanging out with the Bedouin over tea one day, they love their tea, very sugary, they had this ceremony. They, they told me about Bedouin marriage ceremonies. And during the ceremony, just like you and me when we do our ceremonies, right, they, they make a covenant by taking an animal, cutting it in half, and letting the blood drain out. And then the, the groom, or the groom's father, will actually walk through the blood and say, may this be done to me if my son breaks his end of the covenant. And then the bride's father walks through the blood saying the same thing. May this be done to me if my daughter breaks her end of the covenant. Right? And everyone gathered gets to see, okay, these are the relational consequences if the marriage covenant is broken. As an aside, this is why we sell goats at Wellspring. So if you're getting married, no, just kidding. But it actually wasn't until I went to Israel and reread Genesis 15 that things began to actually fall in place. In Genesis 15, the text says that God walks through the blood as a smoking fire pot and as a flaming torch. I want you to notice this. Abraham never walks through the blood. And what God is saying here is that he will take responsibility for both ends of the covenant. He will take responsibility for his side, and given that Abraham has already not been blameless, he will take responsibility for Abraham's side too. Essentially, he is saying to Abraham on this night, hey, hey man, I know you've repeatedly given in to fear. I know that you have passed off your wife as your sister. I know you have not trusted to bring an, me to bring an heir, and you've decided to have a child with Hagar. Abraham, I know. Abraham, I got you. And for us today, right, Jesus looks you and I in the eye and he says, I know what you've done. I know what you failed to do. The good, the bad, the ambiguous but not very faithful. And he looks us in the eye too and he says, you know, I got you. Right? Jesus walks through the blood twice. In the New Testament, this is why Jesus dies on a cross to forgive our sins. And I don't think it's actually coincidental that at the end of Abraham's story in Genesis, he is asked, right, as a father to bring his son up onto Mount Moriah for a sacrifice. 
One way to understand Genesis 22 is as a prophetic reenactment, a prophetic reenactment. Sometimes in Scripture, God actually asks people, usually prophets, to do something that will communicate who God is and what He will do. For example, God tells Hosea, who's a prophet, to marry a prostitute, to symbolize God's loving commitment to Israel, even though Israel is unloyal. He will ask the prophet uh, Ezekiel, actually, to lay on his side for four years to symbolize the siege of Jerusalem. So many people think, actually, what's happening here in Genesis 22 is that Abraham is actually reenacting prophetically enacting what the Father will later do with His Son, who He will offer on behalf of the world. I also don't think it's coincidental that He asked Him to go to Mount Moriah, which means God will provide. Mount Moriah also just happens to be where the temple will be built. It also just happens to be almost the exact location where Jesus will be crucified. For the authors of the New Testament, the story of Abraham and Isaac actually foreshadows that one day God will offer his son in order to forgive our sins, in order to be faithful to the promise he made to Abraham, in order to remind us that God's faithfulness is not contingent upon ours. As I thought about this uh, a lot this week, and just trying to think about, so how does this speak into our everyday life? How does this speak into our understanding? What does it mean to be faithful? There's one practical sort of uh, experiment I wanted us to apply. I think there's this interesting dynamic in modern spirituality where we both downplay our moments of trust in the spiritual life because we don't want to brag. We feel like humility is self-effacing rather than humility being an accurate self-assessment. And on the flip side, we don't really like to face our present or our past failures either. Right? We don't like to see how the ways that fear and anxiety shape our decisions both now and in the past. We don't really like to unpack the guilt or the shame that keep us, that we kind of keep locked and hidden in the garage of our minds and hearts. We kind of, we like to hang out in this middle space where we just kind of plug along, do the next thing, we're distracted and focused on the future. And I get it. I totally relate to this. But I also wonder if God is inviting us to see ourselves mirrored mirrored in the, the faith and the failures of Abraham. Practically, I was wondering if maybe it might be worthwhile for us to take a moment this week and identify maybe one or two or three different moments of real risk and faith and trust you've taken, you know, in the last year, the last five years. It doesn't really matter to me. And just bring it into the presence of Jesus. When was the last time you heard Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I think sometimes we need that encouragement. We need that recognition from God that, okay, 
Like, I'm not just an utter failure. You know, like, I, every so often I do do something, God, that, like, seems to be on track. And sometimes it's just so refreshing and encouraging to hear God's word of encouragement. I also think some of us probably need to take some time this week just to have an honest conversation with God about the broken patterns in our life. Especially the ways in which fear and fear and self-preservation shape us like they did for Abraham and Sarah. And I think for some of us, I think some of us are haunted. We are haunted by past failures, past things that we have done that we are not proud of, that sort of shape our self-perception. They limit our ability to just be in God's presence because we carry around this feeling or this thought that we are just so despicable or we have done these things that are so wrong that God could never forgive us. I remember when I was in my, I don't know, for a number of years after first experiencing the presence of Jesus, I feel like I, basically my entire spiritual life was this sort of superficial tinkering of my behaviors. A little adjustment here, a little adjustment there, but very superficial. Just sort of this tinkering. It wasn't until a number of years in when I had this mentor who actually challenged me to deal with what was really below the surface. And I remember I, I made this huge cross. It barely fit in my, in my room. And I listed out all the things that I wasn't very proud of that I had done. I listed out all those moments of shame, the moments that I was just really embarrassed of that kind of shaped my self-identity. And I remember every morning, I would grab on to the base of that cross, and I would just pray through. I would bring one thing on that list into Jesus' presence and just ask for his healing, ask for his grace just to wash over me. I still remember, I mean, however many years, I still remember the smell of the wood. What's incredible is, you know, numerous years of superficial tinkering with my behaviors did nothing compared to bringing those things into Jesus' presence. Because you show me a relational train wreck in church and in life, nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, you will see a story of pain and struggle and hardship. What I realized was that in order to actually experience the full forgiveness of Jesus, I couldn't just tinker with my superficial behaviors, but I had to allow God in to the deeper parts of pain and shame and things I did that I wasn't particularly proud of. The thing is, right, like, even... You know, these last few weeks when I had my sort of overreactive conversation and I felt that experience of shame, what I realized is it's also easy to go back to superficial tinkering. Even when we've had those deep moments of healing and encounter, it's easy to sort of get back to the superficial way of relating to God. I was on a walk on Friday. 
take Friday mornings as like a Sabbath time. And I just sort of brought that experience of my reactivity and that spirit, feeling of shame into Jesus' presence. And I heard him say to me, Tony, I'm, I'm not done with you yet. Right? 20 years in, I, God is still working on me. And I have to say, that was profoundly encouraging. Sometimes when we're farther along in the spiritual life, we assume that we should have arrived, but the truth is we can actually get into this coasting posture where we are no longer real with Jesus, no longer allowing him to heal those deeper parts of us. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He doesn't want us to pretend, pretend that we are more perfect than we are. And I think the life of Abraham reminds us again today, how much we are in need of Jesus' grace and forgiveness and mercy. The story reminds us that God is the faithful one who loves us, who treasures us, who wants to draw near to us. I invite you this week, take a moment, bring some of those moments of faith into God's presence. And if you have the courage, Maybe go into that storeroom of past experiences, those places you don't really like to think about. Maybe bring those into the light of Jesus' presence that his grace and his healing might bring a deeper healing and a deeper heal, deeper forgiveness that you might be made new. Let's pray.